This is Live Wired in Calgary. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to the first Live Wired in Calgary show of 2020. I'm your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. As always, this show is done in partnership with the wonderful team at CJSW 90.9 FM and is recorded in studio at the University of Calgary on traditional Treaty 7 land. We've got a jam-packed show to start the new year. We're going to look at new rules for post-secondary funding, tax relief once again for Calgary businesses. We'll hear from a familiar voice on the CJSW airwaves, Peter Oliver, as we chat about supervised consumption sites in the Beltline and recent comments from Premier Jason Kenney. Plus, we'll give you a little teaser on North Calgary LRT. Yes, there is a big push with the Green Line to get the south portion done, but what progress, if any, has been made on pushing past 16th Avenue and into North Calgary? We'll try to squeeze in some on your radar as well, but we better get at it. Enjoy the show. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. Alberta post-secondaries have been in the news a lot lately. First off, with the lifting of the tuition cap for Alberta universities and colleges, that was the first one. Uh, the second is most recently uh, an announcement in the way that they were going to change a portion of the funding for universities and colleges in Alberta. Beginning in 2021, uh, 15% of the operational funding for universities and colleges will be subjected to a performance criteria. These performance measures, uh, including graduate employee, uh, employment rate, median income for graduates, graduate skills and competencies, work learning opportunities, sponsored research revenue, a variety of these things will be measured by the province in order to determine how much a university receives. Now, it starts off, as I mentioned, at 15% in 2021, 2020, uh, and gradually increases to 40% of provincial funding by 22-23. We're going to listen to a clip here from uh, Advanced Education Minister Dimitrios Nicolaitis, who talks about what they're going to do with this funding. So I want to start just by providing a little bit of context. Uh, as, as you may know, the government of Alberta invests over $2 billion annually into post-secondary education. And this is done by providing operational funding to 26 universities, colleges, and polytechnics across the province through the Campus Alberta Grant. The current model of investing in post-secondary education is not working in the best possible way. Government funding is not tied to the achievement of any targets progress towards goals or to the changing economic and labor demands. The McKinnon panel report made a very similar recommendation and and made a very similar conclusion. They noted in the report, quote, that the current funding structure does not link funding to the achievement of specific goals or priorities for the province, such as ensuring the required skills for the current and future labor market. Furthermore, today's difficult economic times 
demands that government be a good steward of taxpayer dollars. However, despite these challenging financial times, I firmly believe that with bold action, innovative thinking and transformative change, we can build a stronger post-secondary system. A stronger post-secondary system that ensures young Albertans can find rewarding careers. A stronger system ensures taxpayer dollars are being used to support teaching and research instead of growing administration. And among other things, a stronger system ensures we are proactive in training the workforce of tomorrow. To help achieve this, I am proud to announce today a total transformation in government funding to our post-secondary institutions. In a single sentence, this new model is designed to help our students succeed. Beginning April 1st, the Government of Alberta will move to a performance-based funding model. Performance-based funding is not something new and is a developing and growing trend in higher education. Approximately 35 U.S. states use a form of performance-based funding over the last 10 years. And many other countries around the world, including the United Kingdom, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Norway, Denmark, and Hong Kong, just to name a few, also use performance-based funding in higher education. In 2018, the OECD produced a report on Norway's performance-based model. And as part of their analysis on the need to improve higher education system performance, they concluded that there are opportunities to expand work-integrated learning and improve career guidance to improve labor market relevance of graduates. A similar study recently in June 2019 by the Australian government conducted uh, on performance-based funding issued a series of recommendations. And those recommendations called for the creation of a performance-based funding model to create more accountability for taxpayers and to ensure that graduate outcomes are a priority. Of course, you're going to have hardliners on both sides, those who scream, the sky is falling because of this, and others who say all of the funding should be performance-based. I prefer to straddle the middle. I do think a portion of funding should be tied to performance, Every publicly funded institution should have some KPIs to measure outcomes. Otherwise, you could continue to throw good money after bad in institutions that aren't preparing people for a future workforce. On the flip side, we're getting into PAT territory here. Those are the the school-based tests for grades 3, 6, and 9. Are we just going to be teaching to score well on the tests, or in this case, the performance criteria? Will everything be tied to this rigid and very tangible performance matrix, therefore eliminating intangibles that come with higher education, like critical thought, shaping of one's worldview, thinking outside the box, innovation, or are you just measuring things like employment? employment, and income, or the ability to secure research funding. And is that learning? My dad used to say it's not necessarily what degree you have. What that piece of paper shows others is that you are capable of learning. I hope through this process of transforming Alberta's post-secondary education, we're not losing sight of that.
Late last year, the City of Calgary approved, along with the budget adjustments, a tax shift plan that would see Calgary homeowners pay a higher proportion of the tax revenue collected. That effectively reduced the tax burden Calgary businesses had to pay. Still, some businesses were facing up to 18% increases in their non-residential property tax bills. This prompted the city to extend, once again, their phased tax program, which buffers the impact of higher taxes. Now, if you recall, the plummeting value of Calgary's downtown properties spread the tax burden to smaller businesses, especially those surrounding the downtown. Last week, City Council approved another phase tax program, providing $30 million in one-time relief, leaving the maximum business tax increase at roughly 10%. Mayor Nenshi believed it would be the last year this would be offered, just to ease the transition into paying the full portion of taxes. Others felt as though the city needed to bite the bullet and start shaving the revenue needed to operate the city, and that would actually reduce the tax burden. Here's a quick clip on that from Councillor Jyoti Gondek. How would you respond to that? Last year we heard loud and clear from businesses that the phase tax program was not working and that it was not what they wanted to see. They wanted to see a major structural change. They wanted to see a permanent solution and they pushed hard and advocated for a proportional share shift, which is what we did. Now, to go back and reintroduce the PTP for another year simply compounds the fact that people are not getting used to the fact that they now have to pay the full bore of their property taxes. We're going to make them diluted for another year that they're going to keep getting a break, and I can't keep doing that to businesses. If we don't do as you had suggested and cut at the actual source and reduce the overall tax revenue needed, do you anticipate this problem is going to continue again next year and we're going to have be in the same boat? Absolutely. The operating budget is what drives property taxes. We need to be able to fund an operating budget. So the smaller that operating budget is, the less people have to pay in taxes. It's pretty simple, but we've never looked at it that way. We just keep doing really complicated solutions when the answer is quite simple. Councillor Gondek went on to talk about some of the budget cuts that are coming and some of the use of the City of Calgary's investment income in order to bridge the gap that currently exists in some of the revenue. So it will remain to be seen whether or not the City of Calgary can actually make some of these uh, adjustments to their budget uh, for the future to limit the need for another phase tax program. It's something to keep your eye on in the coming weeks as we get into the upcoming budget year. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. We are going to go back to Councillor Gondeg in this next segment for a conversation about the status of the north part of the Green Line. Not the section that runs up Centre Street to 16th Avenue, that's part of Phase 1, that is, it's also known as Segment 2 of Phase 1. We're actually talking about Phase 2, which takes the Green Line LRT from 16th Avenue to North Point. Now, this interview was done prior to a two-hour drive together that we did uh, around North Calgary to look at some of the transportation challenges and the transportation desert that North Central Calgary has become. I got some real insight into a relatively underserviced part of the city and why, perhaps, Councillor Gondek could have made the case to go north to start the Green Line rather than going south. 
The full ride-along interview will be available soon at livewirecalgary.com. But for now, here's my conversation with Councillor Jyoti Gondek on where she sees progress, or lack thereof, on Phase 2 of Calgary's Green Line. Okay, so I, I, I guess give me your thoughts on the lay of the land as it is right now um, with where we're at with the Green Line situation. So rather than the Green Line conversation happening at uh, Transportation and Transit Committee, a new committee has been formed Mm -hmm. specifically for the Green Line because the project is of a nature where it should have that dedicated set of eyes on it. Um, However, my personal opinion is that I don't know that there was agreement on what the Green Line Committee should be doing. Mm -hmm. And so that first meeting that we had, which has been considered to be an epic fail, um, I think really highlighted what it was that people wanted to get out of the Green Line Committee. And for me, the most frustrating part of it was having to ask, is this committee looking at the whole Green Line, or are you only looking at Phase 1? Right. And there's a bit of a convoluted response. Mm-hmm. So... The fact that phase two is not really a priority for anybody continues to be a struggle for me, even when we have a committee dedicated to it. Right. So let's talk about phase one for a moment. Um, Phase one, we're already, and I guess, I mean, just before we started talking, we've already kind of presupposed that phase one should be the south leg. Let's start there. Um, I don't want to re-argue the whole thing, but should phase one have been the south end, or should we have... maybe paid more attention to the opportunities in the north? I think a few very interesting things happened that led uh, a council prior to me becoming a councillor make the decision on phase one the way it currently exists to the south. Um, I have to give full credit to the councillors in the south who actively lobbied other orders of government for the money that was needed to get this project done. I have full respect for them. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't want to sacrifice a project of this nature out of spite. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm disappointed that the North Leg has to wait. The thing I'm most frustrated about is no one can give me a straight answer what the prioritization technique was that was followed in setting that phasing. Because if you look at the route ahead plan for the city and you look at the variables that are in there, it should have gone north. The ridership is there. The route makes sense. But I believe that in the end, because the money was in hand and we had to move quickly, it was easier to go south because there's less disruption. Right. The enabling works that were already started for the southeast transit way, that work having already started allowed this to move. There was momentum. The problem with the north was the original alignment for LRT up to the north was contemplating the Nose Creek Corridor. When that was revisited, I think in about 2010, The decision was made that that didn't make a lot of sense because that's not where people are. So let's do an alignment along Center Street. And I believe it was 2011 that that was finalized. But since that was finalized in 2011, no one thought to dedicate funding to the purchase of land that would be needed to do that north line along Center Street. And when you come down to it, when the money was in hand from the feds and the province, we had no plan to purchase the land to do a north alignment. And you couldn't use those funds for it. The city would have had to come up with money. We would have had to start negotiations with landowners, and that would have put us behind. The South, in the meantime, did not have that encumbrance. Mm -hmm. So I think it was this perfect storm of being ignored for a very long time in the North that's led to where we are now. I mean, there's there's a lot of things in that. I mean, 
I, I think it was uh, GM Thompson who had mentioned uh, to me that uh, I mean there were th that there were a lot of factors that had gone into the the decision to go to the southeast. Um, others have said that it was a case of expediency in so far as we already know how to lay track in open spaces because that's what we've done. You know, we have new communities. We just lay in open spaces. We weren't as adept, although we had experience with the West LRT in building in an area where we'd have to, you know, take over land and we'd have to buy land and we'd have to we'd have to actually fit it into spaces where there was already built form construction. Right. Do you think that was one of the biggest stumbling blocks? I believe that was a huge, huge stumbling block. Mm -hmm. It is really difficult to go into established areas and change the game for people. We're asking people to take on a massive amount of change and it will disrupt their lives for several years as we go through this project. Right. So I do think that council was a little bit nervous about doing something so big that they had created a plan for, an alignment plan, but had never set the funds aside for. Right. Let's talk about the budget for a moment. Um, let's just say for you know, argument's sake, that it was between four and five billion dollars. At one point, that was going to get us a heck of a lot more. Um, do you think with the way that things have come out, with the, the downtown alignment, with the potential tunnel, the bridge, um, we realized that if we were to stay in that budget, we were going to have to go south just because it's an easier route, it's a less expensive route. Did the budget actually dictate as much as, you know, the, and I guess they're kind of dovetailed to some degree, uh, did it dictate the, the direction, again, because of the ease and because of the cost? Absolutely. The budget influenced many, many decisions. And when you have basically wide open spaces to go and lay down track, and it's quick, and you can start a project that's going to put a lot of Calgarians back to work, and it's going to demonstrate a willingness of this council and this city to take steps towards a true public transit system that works for everybody. No one wanted to give that up. So, once again, you can't sacrifice an entire project when a decision's already been made that could work. My frustration is that in May of 2017, why did nobody think that people were going to be upset that the entire north part of the city was completely forgotten? I still can't believe that there were professionals within administration and members of council who said, the North is not going to be upset. They'll understand why they're second priority. Well, they've, no, they don't. They've gone they don't. so long without some of these things. I mean, you just got to high school. so I don't know. Maybe people thought we didn't have communication networks up there and we wouldn't find out about it since right. we have nothing else. Right. Um, so that gets us, you know, to today, and you're talking about the fact that there is, there's no priority. I, I mean, I'm sure that, that there is a plan to some degree of how we're going to move forward with phase two, but that really hasn't been articulated, um, at least to the point where North residents or yourself could be like, hey, I have confidence that in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we are going to build out the North Line. Can, can you tell me about that? Anytime I've asked about a concrete plan for phase two, the answer has been, don't worry, we're still looking for money. That's not a plan, that's wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
I don't understand why when the question is asked, what are you doing about phase two, the easy answer is always, we're focused on phase one right now. We will get to phase two. Don't worry. Well, I'll tell you what. If that money magically appears, where do you think it's going to go? It's going to go south. It's going to extend a line that's already been started. If we don't, as a city, figure out what our skin in the game is to get that north line going, if we don't actually have a fund put aside for land assembly and we don't make good on our commitment to go north, we can't use matching funds. So my bigger worry is even if we get another tranche of money from the federal or provincial or both orders of government and they say, go ahead and finish your line, the prioritization will take itself because so much of the leg's already been built. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be left waiting yet again because we didn't push hard enough to say you can't ignore us anymore. Calgary's transportation GM Michael Thompson did acknowledge that the focus has been on phase one of the Green Line. Now, what he did also say is that there's recent direction from council to begin uh, looking at in more detail what phase two is going to look like, including some of the land assembly. Well, Councillor Gondek makes some great points about, you know, the North being forgotten. I think that it, it really did come down to the fact that it was easier to, when the money was in hand, go down to the South. Right, wrong or otherwise, it is going to get uh, the Green Line built a little bit faster than perhaps if we had to go through. Even GM Thompson did acknowledge the fact that it was because it was a little bit easier. We would have had to go through the land acquisition. It's it's a long and somewhat painstaking process to have to go through and and purchase all of the land along the the LRT line. So we'll see how this shapes out. I mean, we really have to get past the whole phase one prospect before we can actually begin to think of phase two. So we, there is actually a workshop January 28th that's going to be talking about the proposed alignment. So we'll see what comes out of that before we get into any further conversation about Calgary's Green Line. All right, let's scoot really quickly into On Your Radar for the month of February. It is the month of love. Of course, we have Valentine's Day. Guys, gals, don't forget, be sure to spend that special moment with a loved one. But we do have some other things happening across Calgary, beginning on February 1st with Festavino at Market Wines on Saturday from 7 to 9 p.m. Getting a little bit later into the month, we have Alberta's Green Cities. It's at the Orpheus Theatre at Sate. Uh, that's on Thursday, February 6th from 6 to 8 p.m. This is the year of the rat, so the Chinese New Year does begin. I believe it starts January 25th. But there is a celebration uh, here at the University of Calgary at McEwen Hall, a Chinese New Year 2020 celebration from 2.30 to 5.30 p.m. Later on in the month, we have the Block Heater Festival on February 21st at Studio Bell. That's on the Friday. Also on Friday and running through to Saturday is Wine Fest. If you like to get your drink on with a little bit of wine, the Wine Fest is a great place to do it. That's Friday, February 21st and Saturday, February 22nd at the BMO Centre. (laughs) 
Supervised consumption sites have been a hot topic in Calgary since the Sheldon Schumer Centre opened in 2018. Stories about the social disorder crimes that have increased in the immediate area around the Schumer have been ongoing, and the city and the Calgary police responded by increasing police presence in the area. Meanwhile, overdoses have been reduced, and the number of people referred to social agencies has increased. Crime has somewhat lessened in the area, but recent comments by Premier Jason Kenny suggested upcoming changes to supervised consumption sites in Alberta, including relocation and possible outright closure. You know, I I think we see uh, pretty much everywhere a marked increase in crime in the area of those sites uh, and uh, social disorder uh, and, um, and, and negative human consequences in many ways. Uh, so that is why we committed in our platform to do a, to appoint an expert panel to engage in an evidence-based review of the impact of these drug sites and to see if there's a better way of doing harm reduction. We're not opposed to harm reduction as part of the continuum of care uh, for people facing uh, drug addictions. But we must place a much bigger emphasis on uh, opportunities for detox, treatment and recovery. And basically what the previous NDP government did was they shifted resources from treatment and recovery to with an obsessive focus on so-called harm reduction, including these drug sites. We think that is imbalanced. We think that, uh, that folks who are facing addiction need to know that there is a way out. That's why we've put an additional $150 million, even in tough fiscal times, uh, into mental health and addictions. And it's why we've announced the, that we'll be opening at least 4,000 additional addiction and recovery spaces in the system. Joining me now by phone is Peter Oliver, president of the Beltline Neighbourhoods Association. They posted a piece on, the, on BeltlineYYC.ca that actually takes a look at some of the crime trends and some of the social agency referrals that have happened over the past few months. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter. Thanks for having me, Darren. So, I mean, I, I mentioned off the top the blog post you guys posted, but first I'd like to hear your reaction to Premier Kenny's remarks about uh, the, the state of supervised consumption sites in Alberta. Hmm. Well, uh, it's no secret, I think, to most people. Jason Kenny has a lot of very social conservative views. I think that would most people would consider sort of out of line with the common consensus in in Calgary and Alberta and Canada. We know that he's opposed uh, same-sex marriages. He's opposed uh, gay-straight alliances. He's opposed women's reproductive rights. And and he's made all sorts of comments in the past against uh, supervised consumption sites. We've been putting together... Um, information from Calgary Police Services, AHS, uh, Alberta Health Services, and the organization that runs the supervised consumption site in Schumer, um, just because they've been putting out their own reports that each tell a story. And we've been trying to put that together sort of into one picture for the community so everyone can kind of have a better understanding of what's going on. And so his comments yesterday, uh, you know, painting a a very dire picture of everything. And uh, I I think it was just disappointing to hear from uh, the leader of the province um, comments that are clearly very skewed by his own personal beliefs and and not necessarily by what the data is saying or what, you know, experts 
are are telling us. Well, that's one thing that Mayor Nenshi had actually brought up was was the biggest mistake was not opening more than one at the same time because we've basically concentrated all of the information. And and to that end, maybe maybe the data that does come in, whether it's crime, whether it's the number of overdoses, whether, whether it's the number of users, maybe that's skewed because of the fact that we only opened the one. So... I mean, with that in mind, Peter, what is the solution? Is the solution more? Is is the solution more police presence? How, how do you see it? Yeah, so we know we've heard from Calgary Police Service in the past. Uh, this isn't a problem that they can solve by arresting people just indefinitely. Um, it, it's a public health crisis, and it has to be recognized as such. Um, and I think we also have to consider... Um, at the time in 2017 when the SCSs were launched, uh, the methamphetamine crisis wasn't what it is today, and so it's a different situation on the ground. We also have to consider um, what would have happened if the SCSs weren't open. How many bodies would we have found in our back alleys um, and in our parks? And what could the extent of the damage be if they were just suddenly and uh, abruptly closed? So we, the Beltline Neighborhoods Association, has long advocated for the opening of additional SDS sites to relieve the one in the Beltline. Um, and we also need a provincial government, I think, that's going to uh, support AHS and support the cities um, from everything from, you know, EMS services to uh, Calgary Police Services and support communities. And, and work collaboratively, because if there's anything we've seen, it's that there's no one department or level of government that can solve this problem alone. Peter Oliver, president of the Beltline Neighborhoods Association. They did put a, a, a post up providing a lot of this information at beltlineyyc.ca. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again for having me, Darren. As usual, we are up against the clock. Once again, I'd like to thank Peter Oliver from the Beltline Neighborhoods Association, Councillor Jody Gondek, and of course, you, the listener, for joining me again this month. We'll catch you next month.